A comprehensive look at the history of any country or nation often entails the history of its people through the ages, which often results in a unified or independent country. The History of France discusses a history of the French people of Russia the Russian, Italy the Italian and Germany the German people. This then brings the interesting topic of Palestine and therefore a much needed comprehensive history of the people who have lived in Palestine, also known as the Palestinians if we are to stick to conventional and historically accurate naming. We are simply unable to forget the multiple millennia of livelihood in Palestine whilst we are in the midst of an age where history is quite often written by the one who has a physical or monetary superiority over the other, or has more media reach. To put it simply, there is an ongoing attempt to completely erase not just the Palestinian people from their country, but from existence itself. This includes not just the physical erasure of the Palestinians who call and have called Palestine their home, but an erasure of the entire Palestinian history from common memory. So, hello, and welcome to Palestine from past to present, where we will be looking at the history of Palestine through the ages. Much of the interest around Palestine right now comes from people wanting to know more about the current tragedy that has befallen Palestine. So even though we will go back thousands of years in future episodes addressing the rich history and legacy of Palestine, as well as its trials and tribulations, we will begin this episode in particular by addressing what many people want to know in a clear and concise manner. What was Palestine like in the 1800s? And what was the Palestinian experience? Before and as movements like Zionism began to form in Europe that would attempt to control and eventually occupy Palestine. In essence, how did the Europeans do it? And therefore, what is the root cause of the tragedy we are facing today? Let's get started. For this episode, we'll start in the 19th century, or the 1800s if you will. Palestine was under the control of the Ottoman Empire at that time, and they had been since the early 16th century. By around 1853 to 1854, there were half a million people living in Palestine. Though it does not seem like a big population, there are of course countries today whose total population is around the same or even less than the figure for Palestine was back in the 1850s, and we can look towards Iceland with its population between three and 400,000, Malta just over 500,000, Belize 400, Liechtenstein 39, San Marino 34, and there's so many more independent states which have tinier populations. It's important to bear in mind that the overall world population in the 1850s was only a fraction of what the population is today. More specifically, we're almost at 8 billion people at the time of recording, compared to 1.2 billion back in 1850. So even though Palestine's population seemed small, you have to see the bigger picture. In addition, today it's worth mentioning that Palestinians are at over 14 million people worldwide. With regards to the religious denomination of the Palestinians at the time, the vast majority were Muslims, totaling over 350 to over 400,000, with a sizable minority in the form of Christianity, who made up 60,000, Jewish 20,000, and they were the three big Abrahamic faiths of the nation. To maintain control, there were also 50,000 Ottoman soldiers, and also around 10,000 Europeans who lived there too. Palestine was split by the Ottomans into small sub-provinces called Sanjaks. 
of which we would find Sanjak Akka in the far north, Sanjak Jerusalem in the middle to southern Palestine, and Sanjak Nablus in between them. Of course, these contained some of the most important and famous cities of the time, including the ones they were named after, Nablus, Jerusalem, and Akka themselves. In addition, within them you would find Gaza, Jaffa, Haifa, and Hebron. Most Palestinians lived in villages outside of the big cities and quite often towards the entrances of valleys. From the earlier 1800s and even earlier than that, Palestinian agriculture was a significant part of day-to-day life. The Bedouin tribes, for example, who were nomadic Arab tribes who lived in the deserts to the south of Palestine, supplied raw materials to the urban towns and cities and received products and commodities in return. Historian Ilan Pape discusses the workings of a Bedouin tribe called the Bani Shakr. They supplied raw materials to Nablus in order for the soap industry to work, and in return, the tribe received certain products. Now this is an economic system, it's somewhat simple, but can certainly be compared to that of a modern one, long before the arrival of Europeans into the local Palestinian markets. Though it's important to note, once they did arrive, things drastically began to change. As for the nobility, or the elite if you prefer, they lived in the more urban centres among the large towns and cities of Palestine. Their status was important to them of course, and it was built based on a number of factors. Two important and interesting factors included their family history and also their relationships with the ruling class. Family history was important as notables often had genealogies stretching back to the earliest days of Islam, and this kind of family history would more likely be found in some of the oldest and most historical cities of Palestine such as Jerusalem or Hebron. The other factor that I mentioned was relationships with the ruling class, who were the Ottomans. The Ottomans would therefore give important positions to people and families which they trusted the most and had a good relationship with. These notables would then rule over their sub-provinces, maintaining their status so long as they did not stray too far from central Ottoman policy. This was a good way for the Ottomans to allow Palestinians to be ruled by Palestinians themselves, rather than implementing someone foreign straight into Palestine. These notables therefore had more legitimacy to rule since they were Palestinian themselves in which the common civilian would accept them as one of their own. With this system, civilians believed they could be protected from conscription and excessive taxation from the Ottomans. The notables believed they had good power and awareness of the geopolitical reality on the ground, and the Ottomans believed they could more easily implement their policies as such. These small rulers sometimes did try to implement early dreams of sovereignty and independence by moving away from central Ottoman policy, albeit with little success. Religion played a part under the Ottoman Empire, where Islam was the state religion, though as you can imagine there was little focus on the worship of God, but rather using Islam as more of a tool to control people and the individual states to gain their loyalty. Life and culture for Christians and Jews was no different to Muslims, however, with similar factors influencing their status in society. The language in Palestine, as it had been for their predecessors, was Arabic. So regardless of religion, Palestinians would converse between themselves in their mother tongue, Arabic. But for the notable families, official government correspondence had to occur in Ottoman Turkish. On the topic of dreams and sovereignty and independence, 
these kinds of things were more likely to happen when you have a unified people. For example, unified in customs, tradition, language, history, and thus an eventual nationalistic mindset is created. For Palestinians, they all spoke Arabic with a particular accent, dressed similarly, shared a history, customs and traditions together, which differed to some extent from their neighbours. In Palestine, you would sometimes get uprisings, revolts and protests against the Ottomans. Most people were generally happy with their quiet lives and avoided trouble and upheavals, so long as the Ottomans granted them the autonomy they had been living under. When the Egyptians invaded and occupied Palestine from the Ottomans from 1831 to 1840, life changed for the average Palestinian. Suddenly, the notables that were autonomous under the Ottomans were now under severe pressure from the Egyptians to provide the Egyptians money with excess of taxation, with weapons and Palestinian child conscripts for their military. A subsequent loss of Palestinian political autonomy however much it existed, had now gone, with the replacement of these notables who followed Egyptian interests instead. It was the common Palestinian civilian that suffered the most from these changes. Palestinian society erupted in what was a show of unification, solidarity and nationalism, in which the notables from the towns and cities, the peasants from the villages and the Bedouin tribes from the desert all came together to stand and protest for fundamental change. This was the Peasants' Revolt, as it is called. This is interesting because if you look to the unification of Italy as the modern Italian state, this occurred in 1861, or if you look at the unification of Germany as a modern state, this also occurred in the 1800s. So when we look towards nationalism and an attempt at unification of a people, the Palestinians, despite being under hundreds and hundreds of years of foreign rule, by the Ottomans, for example, and subsequently the Egyptians, before again being taken over by the Ottomans, had time and time again come together as one in what can most certainly be described as Palestinian nationalism. With regards to the economy again, after the Paris Congress following the Crimean War of 1856, foreigners to Palestine were now allowed to purchase land, property, and with many groups of pilgrims now coming, banking businesses began to open up to try and take advantage of the money being invested into Palestine. So European attempts of integrating Palestine into their economies was beginning to occur. The people living in Palestine had to learn to integrate and adjust in order to fit this ever-growing economic system, where the way in which people could own land was changed, levels of taxation changed, and a balance between the Palestinians was shaken between the notables, Bedouins and the peasantry. So much so that European entrance into Palestine had damaged more than just the established economic balance between these groups and society, but the vast majority of individuals themselves, as it led to the uprooting of peasants, loss of land and therefore internal migration, and with Bedouin tribes being unable to do business as they could before, and with many, many more consequences. At first, the Palestinian market was not necessarily dependent on European economics, though trade and such did occur. But by the 1880s, Palestine was, like many other countries who had been in contact with Europe, part of their now-established worldwide economy. Palestine was not just rich in produce itself, but it was also a very convenient place for the transport of raw materials, such as those from Lebanon, Syria, Egypt and beyond which French and British ships would come to collect from Palestinian ports, whilst delivering products manufactured in Europe 
for Palestine. Following the Egyptians in Palestine, when the Ottomans returned to controlling Palestine in the 1840s, they changed Palestinian borders in an attempt to control Beirut and Damascus, the two local centres which had a significant influence over Palestine. But by the 1860s, Beirut had been given permission to share control in the Nablus and Acre provinces, essentially annexing it into the province Sida, with Beirut as its capital. With Damascus, of course, continuing to have influence over the remaining Sanjak and Palestine, the Jerusalem province. However, by 1872, the Jerusalem province was now independent, and under it was Jaffa, Hebron, Gaza, Beersheba, and this independent province was only the second after Istanbul itself. And so by becoming independent, it was able to be represented in a council where finances were discussed leading to improvement in architecture and sanitation. The Ottomans did wonder if adding the provinces of Nablus and Acre to Jerusalem and taking it away from Beirut would be a good idea, though they were aware that risked a greater movement of nationalism in Palestine. So after this, the next time that these Palestinian provinces would be together again would be under the occupation of the British in the British Mandate of Palestine. We see Not just back then, but even today, the nation had its own customs, folklore, traditions and major dialect separating it from its neighbours. And it was most importantly recognised by its civilian population itself as being distinct from others. Even when put under Beirut, people from the Nablus province protested to the extent that 3,000 of them ended up losing their lives, as stated by the British Consul of Jerusalem. But of course, there were demonstrations of autonomy and nationalism throughout Palestine's history, such as the relative autonomy demonstrated back in the 1700s with Zahir al-Omar, a Palestinian ruler of northern Palestine, who impressively ruled autonomously despite being under occupation from the Ottomans. He is quite well known for moving the city and population of Haifa a few kilometres east of where it used to be, for the purpose of fortification, and that is where modern Haifa stands today. He had a great tolerance to all faiths, including minority faiths, such as Christianity and Judaism. Withstanding attacks from the Ottomans throughout his rule, whilst building the Palestinian economy as a popular port via trade with Europe. This trade mainly included cotton, olive oil and such, and thus reducing dependence on Beirut as a port. In northern Palestine, he ruled over not just Haifa and the Galilee, but also Acre, and overall his story and history is very interesting. Certainly one we'll be coming back to discuss in greater detail when we cover the older Palestinian history. But in any case, as Palestine developed, towns and cities got larger, with ever-expanding architecture, which was quite prominent on coastal cities in particular, which could benefit from trade with Europe. Haifa was just one example though this also occurred in the port city of Jaffa, where there was a key rail network, one that Christian and Jewish pilgrims used to use when they wanted to come and visit Jerusalem. A shift in policy by the Ottomans was the Tanzimat reforms of 1839 to 1876 as a way of trying to consolidate their power across the empire and to reduce the nationalism. They changed aspects of law, education and more in an attempt to modernise the empire, which allowed Palestinians to seek positions among the Ottoman elite, with people attending from all three main Abrahamic faiths. 
Islam was the majority, Christianity a sizable minority, and then a small number of Jews. There was a time when Palestinian nationalism was rising, but before this could be a dominant force, foreign powers began to meddle in Palestinian affairs, particularly when the law around owning land and its cultivation changed. Many wealthy people bought property as a means to increase their capital via agriculture, where this began to create a Palestinian elite based less on religion or history as it once was, but more so based on their capital. At this time, when European countries began to meddle in Palestine, showing interest in its economy and expressing aspirations of annexing Palestine into their own geopolitical spheres of influence, is the exact time the European-born Zionist movement began to arrive in Palestine to try to exploit the changing economic and geopolitical situation. European Christians took interest in Palestine, as mentioned, particularly after the Crimean War, when roads and security had improved in the region, as there was an influx of missionaries. The most determined being the German Templars and European Jews also took interest in the region. Both arrived at the same time, both Christians and Jews, in order for all of them to try and take advantage of settling, potentially occupying and ultimately annexing Palestine. So this movement to annex and occupy Palestine had already begun in the second half of the 1800s, long before our modern day and age, as all the major powers of Europe had their aspirations for control of Palestine. The missionaries were spurred by their governments to establish, develop and expand their influence in the region. Though, of course, some went to Palestine to try and bring about biblical end of times that was predicted to occur before the end of the century. The Jews moving there would aspire of a political ideology called Zionism, where they sought to establish themselves in Palestine and subsequently expand at the expense of the native Palestinians. This is where we can begin to talk about the colonialism and the crimes of European countries against other people and nations by conquering them, settling their own European people in these countries, and then proceeding to exploit the indigenous. The exact definition of colonialism according to the Oxford Dictionary of Human Geography is the control over one territory and its peoples by another, and the ideologies of superiority and racism often associated with such domination. Control may be incomplete or contested, although fully established colonialism generally involves some measure of formal political and legal rule. Colonialism is often but not necessarily accompanied by the settlement of the subordinated territory, a process known as colonisation. In turn, the settlement might be referred to as a colony. Remember this term as it is a key point that has forsaken Palestine and the Palestinians and we will be coming back to it time and time again. Colonialism has occurred in but is not limited to countries or regions around the world that we know of, such as the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South America, India, and from the north to South Africa, in addition to the Middle East and Palestine, of course, with mass negative consequences for the native and indigenous populations of these territories. Settler colonialism is similar, but in addition to occupying and settling on foreign land, It intends to replace the native population of that country with the population of their own foreign colonisers or settlers, if you're looking for more neutral terminology. This has succeeded in the USA, Canada, Australia and New Zealand as we see most people who live there now are not originally from there, 
at the expense of the indigenous communities. To summarise, colonialism is where foreign powers control someone else's land and exploit the local population. But in settler colonialism, the aim is to completely eliminate the local population, replacing it with another. In which, of course, settler colonialism is the basis of Zionism, deeply rooted in European values where, for example, British colonialists usually saw large areas of the planet as terra nullius, a Roman legal term explaining, or rather meaning, nobody's land in Latin. Also known as land that was not under control by European powers and therefore available for occupation and settlement, can also be interpreted as a complete absence of people or an absence of a civilised people capable or deserving of land ownership, according to European political thinking. This is how, for example, Australia was founded by the British government justifying and legitimising the inhumane occupation and settler colonisation of Australia from its Aboriginal inhabitants. The missionaries were made up of a number of Jesuits and Catholics that were already in the region, with Orthodox Christians, and then American and British Protestants joined the fight for influence in Palestine afterwards. The British consulate did not have its role limited to just diplomatic efforts, but was also supporting the missionaries in trying to convert as many people as they could to Christianity. And you will find many books about Palestine from this era, as over 3,000 were written throughout the 19th century, which gave the image of a Palestine that was empty, barren and backward, and Palestinians that were primitive, underdeveloped, not modern, and in need of European influence. This was a common view of superiority by Western Europeans wherever they visited on the globe. The belief that Palestinians did not exist, or if they were acknowledged, they did not deserve to inhabit Palestine, or were in need of European influence. Groups such as the Palestine Exploration Fund were developed to map the topography and ethnography of Palestine for multiple reasons, which included military intelligence gathering, and this group still exists today for the, and I quote, study of the Levant. An earlier explorer, British Member of Parliament, Thomas Tywit Drake, said he had, and I quote, seldom in this country heard a genuine laugh from a man, woman or child. The great struggle for existence seems to have crushed all but fictitious mirth, end of quote. And thus there was a clear, distinct attitude and prejudice by Europeans against the Palestinians regardless of whether they were Muslim, Christian or Jewish Palestinians. The European colonialists were arrogant, had a superiority complex when comparing themselves to non-Europeans and very clearly had racist views of Palestinians similar to every other part of the earth they had demonised, destroyed and colonised. Zionism that we have mentioned was a European ideology that stemmed at first from Christians but was later taken up by Jews as a means to move away from Europe in order to establish a supposed homeland in Palestine. Now we must be absolutely clear when we have said Muslims, Christians or Jews in this episode at no point have we been referring to a, let's say, genetic group. As religion and faith do not come at birth and there are no genes to isolate someone as such. A Muslim from Palestine is different in ethnicity, with different genetics and different ancestry, to that of a Muslim from Indonesia or Pakistan. Similarly, a Jew from Palestine follows different genetics and ancestry to the Jews of Europe or Ethiopia, and in addition, 
a Christian from Palestine is not necessarily the same as one from Vatican City or Brazil, with different ethnicities, ancestries and genetics. A religion is a belief, and nothing more than that, but when comparing Muslims, Jews and Christians from Palestine with each other, who are all essentially Arabs of different faiths, then in that case, yes, they are of the same or similar genetics, ethnicity and ancestry. In Eastern Europe in the 1850s, groups of Jews began to loosen their faith in Judaism, instead looking towards why it could be that Judaism was seen as such a problem in Europe amongst their fellow countrymen and women. They began to move away from the idea of Judaism as just a religion, instead wondering if it is related to Judaism as a nation. This therefore preceded the Austro-Hungarian Theodor Herzl, who is often credited with founding this ideology of Zionism, where he too saw Judaism in being Jewish as a nation rather than, as it has traditionally been seen and known for millennia, a faith. We know his ideology of Zionism was not unique and had already been thought of in Europe before, and the Judeophobic among the Europeans also believed in marginalising Jewish people and collecting them into a single race of people. Nonetheless, this man, who had failed in careers as a playwright and journalism, with little education in religion, or even interest in Jewish-Yiddish culture, had now begun to preach and spread this ideology. A moment which is thought to have influenced Herzl and his ideology was the Dreyfus Affair, which occurred in France involving the arresting of a French officer named Alfred Dreyfus in 1894, accused of treason and handing over military documents to Germany. To Herzl, this was an example of Judeophobia that was evidence Jews were not safe in Europe. Ultimately, Dreyfus was found guilty again in 1899, but was eventually found innocent and exonerated in 1906, and was allowed back into the French army after that. Nonetheless, this was a factor on Herzl's mind in his goal of leaving Europe and seeking a new land. At least, this is how the general narrative goes, while others believe that Herzl had already embraced Zionism by then, using the Dreyfus affair as a method of gaining more followers. Herzl even wrote a book in 1896 called Der Judenstadt, or The State of the Jews, in which he decided that anti-Semitism is inevitable. This blueprint for a Jewish state was unclear in its location, stating, shall we choose Palestine or Argentina? And even saying, the promised land is where we shall take it. And these contradictions to Palestine being a delayed and historic right for Jews became very evident, as there was no geographic clarity as to where the state should be, as long as it is somewhere. Since anti-Semitism has now been mentioned, the definition in terms of common usage in the 21st century is discrimination or hostility against Jews as a religious group or a, invert commas, race. At least that is how it is used in Europe and the United States, but breaking down the word itself, anti, comes from the word in ancient Greek to mean against, opposite or opposing, and Semitism from the word Semite, referring to people who speak a Semitic language, are descendants from ancient Semitic groups, or those who are descended from the patriarchal biblical figure Shem, or Sam, if you will. This puts Palestinians straight into the Semitic group, as they, along with most of the Middle East and North Africa, speak the most common Semitic language, Arabic and their ancestors having lived in Palestine for millennia makes it ever more apparent that Palestinians are the descendants of the ancient groups that once inhabited the region to bring us to where we are today. 
This is an interesting topic and we will no doubt cover it in the future as we look towards ancient history. Nevertheless, there are a number of other Semitic languages including Amharic from Ethiopia, Aramaic, the language of Jesus himself, Maltese, Hebrew and more. For the purpose of this series, we will therefore not be using the term anti-Semitism to mean Jewish discrimination on its own unless we are quoting it, but rather we will be using, as we have done, the more accurate term of Judeophobia to refer to discrimination against Jews, similar to the term Islamophobia, where there is discrimination against Muslims. Herzl searched for backers of his ideology, but he struggled. In Western society, he sought out elite in the form of bankers and industrialists, but no one was able to resonate with his thoughts with regards to Zionism, in which he decided to go to Eastern Europe instead, where some small Jewish communities went to watch him speak. After some time, Herzl had begun to rise in popularity in mainly Eastern European Jewish groups and after making a group of close friends of around 200 people. With this group, he could discuss Zionism as a political movement and an ideology, tap into individual Jewish communities that they had come from, each of these 200 people, whenever Herzl had wanted, and to create what was the Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, 1897. A year before this, however, he used his connections to try and settle Ottoman debt with a large payment of money, according to some sources, in return for a lease of Palestine, though this was swiftly rejected. So clearly, he still had connections, which in his case was via his Polish diplomatic agent. In the collection of Zionists within this Zionist Congress, they discussed their strategies of taking over another place, agreeing that they wanted a sanctuary for Jewish people in the land of Palestine, and I quote, guarded by international law. In particular, the next year, 1898, it was agreed this acquisition of a new country should be done by colonisation of Palestine, and at last, the real motivation for the creation of Zionism was revealed. In fact, even though the supposed motivation for Zionism was for protection of Jewish people, careful analysis of the figurehead's words and actions, as well as history, archives and current events, has shown otherwise, as this ideology and its followers pushed for a colonisation of Palestine excluding the people who already lived there, worked there, and died there for millennia, all whilst weaponising the suffering and taking advantage of European Jews in the process. Herzl did visit Palestine, but this was just on one single occasion in 1898. After the Third Congress of 1899, Herzl sought to obtain a chartered lease from the Ottoman Empire, believing that money from Europe would solve all his troubles again. He did not even get to meet the Ottoman figureheads though, as the aides outright rejected the lease of Palestine to Europeans. There were still problems with the numbers of Zionists, as the majority of Jews did not take Herzl or the idea of Zionism seriously. In 1897, just two years prior, the Berlin correspondent for the London Standard even said that Zionism, and I quote, finds little favour in Germany except among the anti-Semites. There was a particular resentment of how Zionists treated being Jewish as a race, just like the Judeophobes of Europe at the time. Jewish people had already had enough of that from other Europeans who did so to alienate them and discriminate against them, and so they did not want this from their own Jewish brothers and sisters in faith either. 
By some, such as historian Lucien Wolff at the time, though Zionism was a major setback in the progress of equality for Jews in Europe, Herzl was unfazed. Instead, using Zionism as his standard of who was a good Jew and who was a bad Jew, as he said, and I quote, no true Jew can be an anti-Zionist. And he claimed that any Jew who was, was a, and I quote, a mauschel. Which was an offensive term relating to poor or religious Jews. He even went on a Judeophobic tirade in an article he wrote, talking about anti-Zionist Jews using this particular slur and saying things like they are crooked, sleazy and shabby, a specimen to Merely look at him, let alone approach or heaven forbid touch him was enough to make us feel sick. They are a, and I quote, hideous distortion of the human character, something unspeakably low and repulsive, and a curse of the Jews. And perhaps most shockingly in reference to Zionism, this is one of the first and most beneficial consequences of the movement. We'll breathe more easily having rid once and for all of these people whom, with furtive shame, we were obliged to treat as our fellow tribesmen. Now, all those quotes you've just heard are what Herzl, the founder of Zionism, thought of his fellow European Jews, who happened to oppose his ideology. Now, can you imagine what he thought about the Palestinians and the native inhabitants of Palestine? It is at this point I will mention a figure who was in contact with Herzl to question him on his ideology. When reading Rashid Khalidi's book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, he discusses his great-great-great-uncle Yusuf Dia ad-Din Basha al-Khalidi, a well-educated Palestinian man who worked for the Ottomans as a translator in the foreign ministry. He was a consul on the Russian port of Poti on the Black Sea. He was a governor of districts in numerous areas, including in Palestine, and for almost ten years, he was the mayor of Jerusalem as well as being an elected deputy from Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament for the short time it was active. He also on occasions taught at the Royal Imperial University in Vienna. And it was his travels in Europe where he noted the apparent Judeophobia, but also into the mind and works of Herzl himself. Herzl even wrote in his diary in 1895, we must expropriate gently the private property on the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries while denying it employment in our own country. The property owners will come over to our side. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. It is likely Khalidi saw the illogical claims of Zionism and the inability to reconcile their views with the existence already of the native population who lived in Palestine, as Khalidi wrote a seven-page letter intended to reach Herzl. He referred to Jews as our cousins in reference to the prophetic figure in both religions, Abraham. Though Khalidi in his experience as mayor of Jerusalem had previously seen and therefore understood the potential for tensions between the new settlers and the native people, as well as risking the security of other Jews living across the wider Middle East and Africa, he said, Palestine is an integral part of the Ottoman Empire, and more gravely it is inhabited by others. Of course, he worked for the Ottoman Empire in many roles, so he appeared content to keep it as such rather than aiming for further nationalism as others may have, but by pointing out that Palestine already had its indigenous population who would never accept being uprooted, that was important. In the name of God, let Palestine be left alone, was the conclusion of the letter. 
The letter eventually did reach Herzl via the French chief rabbi, and the response did not take long at all. This was the leader of the Zionist movement communicating directly with a Palestinian leading figure, former mayor and deputy of Jerusalem, objecting to Zionist plans. The reply lacked any acknowledgement of the dangers of Zionism, ignoring the fact that Palestine was already inhabited, but rather as if from European colonial textbooks, and with the same reason repeated across other colonialist occupations and empires, he claimed, it is their well-being, their individual wealth, which we will increase by bringing in our own. He goes on by saying, in allowing immigration to a number of Jews, bringing their intelligence, their financial acumen, and their means of enterprise to the country, no one can doubt that the well-being of the entire country would be the happy result. As for the Palestinians, the letter reads, you see, another difficulty, excellency, in the existence of the non-Jewish population in Palestine, but who would think of sending them away? Though this line in the letter comes as a direct contradiction to Herzl's diary entry that I just read out to you. Seeking to move Palestinians discreetly across borders and to deny them employment in their own Palestinian land. Terra nullius springs to mind, resembling the words of leading figures from France during their North African occupation, or the British in their occupation of India. From a traditional standpoint, according to Judaism, Jews are to be in exile until the Messiah returns, which is partly why many rabbis in Europe completely forbade their communities from getting involved in Zionism, and why the numbers of Zionists were never very big at this time. In addition, politicians and those of the elite circles found Herzl's idea of establishing a country on top of another quite shocking. After all, his ideology took Europeans from a vast array of countries, from the United Kingdom to the Russian Empire, passing through France, Germany and many more, and it told them they must decide where their loyalties lie. Does it lay with their homeland, their country, their roots, their communities, faith and everything they have ever known? Or does it lay with this newly established ideology and identity of Judaism being something that was now no longer just a religion, but an inescapable nation that you were born with? Jews believed they had been assimilating well into Western Europe as the 1800s had went on, but suddenly other Europeans at the Zionist Congress, namely Herzl and company, decided that European Jews had a choice to make with regards to how they define being Jewish. So this was one side of Zionism, the political aspect which involved amassing members with indoctrination and trying to find an avenue of colonising Palestine from Europe itself. Another side included those that were deemed territorial Zionists. They had more direct actions in order to colonise Palestine, seeing themselves as pioneers and seeing themselves as similar to the white settlers of America, but this time in Palestine. Most were from the Russian Empire, with a key figure being Chaim Weizmann, who we will discuss in the future who was born in where Belarus is today, moving to Manchester in the UK, and his reason for changing ideology when it came to Judaism was supposedly the pogroms which occurred in 1881, Russia, after Alexander II was assassinated. Undoubtedly, there was discrimination from Europeans against their Jewish believers, not just in the East, but also in the West. Where possible, Jewish people did try to find opportunities to move elsewhere. Many Russian Jews, for example, tried to leave following these pogroms, going to numerous countries with the vast majority going to the USA or Western Europe. According to Daphna Levitt in her book on Wrestling with Zionism, 
She states that Jews were under pressure to end their isolationist ghetto lifestyles in Eastern Europe. So when moving into the West, they integrated quite well, living near and with people other than those of their religious group. They adopted their values, their dresswear, languages, modernised their own education systems, all whilst maintaining their ties to Judaism. This was not foolproof, as we see that Western Europeans still discriminated against their Jewish inhabitants, seeing them as outsiders, not just in a religious sense, but treating Jewish people as a single and separate race of people. Of those that didn't leave their homes in Russia, as in those who stayed, they were often young students who, in 1882, would create small groups that also had similar views to that of what Herzl would have later on in that they wanted to colonise Palestine and so began identifying themselves no longer as simple Europeans, but primarily as being born Jews, and therefore having an aspect of them that they could not escape and that they were different to other Europeans. There weren't many of these types of Zionists either. Nonetheless, Russian Jews began travelling to Palestine and building settlements there, and to preach to other Eastern European Zionists that this was a good idea. Zionist documentation from these groups showed that they were unhappy with the people in Palestine, calling it an Arab problem or an Arab question. The new settlers were concerned about the indigenous people living there, the Palestinians. These worries and attitudes to Palestinians from these early settlers showed that there were opinions ranging from indifference, complete ignorance, to racism and superiority. The Ottomans noted Zionist attempts to colonise Palestine and European immigration of those who were Jewish was restricted in 1882, only to be lifted in 1888 via pressure from the British Embassy. Not many of these Zionists stayed long anyway, but still they would attempt to lay foundations for future colonisation. When back home in Russia, they would organise further unions and groups, eventually becoming a registered legal society in Russia in 1890 where they were very clear in their desire and efforts to colonise Palestine. Money was a problem for the ideology, as they needed funders and finances. Zionists turned to the richest European who was Jewish, named Baron Edmund de Rothschild, a French banker. A strong supporter of Zionism from the 1880s, he funded a lot of their early movement to Palestine, sending experts such as agriculturalists, along with the funded settlers, to help structure and plan out the colonisation of Palestine. In the process of this colonisation attempt, where they aimed to take Palestinian land, resources, labour and more, Rothschild deemed that the settlers' work ethic was subpar, eventually pulling his funding as early as 1899, but this support was replaced by the Zionist organisation for the settlement of the land of Palestine. As if it wasn't clear enough already what their plans were for Palestine, they literally had it in the name of their organisations. Their settlements and tactics were noted by Zionist Asher Tzvi Ginsberg, who in 1891 said about the settlers that, and I quote, Suddenly they find themselves in unrestricted freedom, and this change has awakened in them an inclination to despotism. They treat Arabs with hostility and cruelty, deprive them of rights, offend them without cause, and even boast of these deeds. And nobody among us opposes this despicable and dangerous inclination. You see, the Zionist colonisation of Palestine started before 1948, before the Balfour Declaration of 1917 even, 
which we will cover of course, and they already had a certain attitude towards the Palestinians who had already lived there before their arrival. Yitzhak Epstein in 1905 at the 7th Zionist Congress warned his fellow Zionists about their colonisation and dispossession by saying, and I quote, we must not uproot people from land to which they and their forefathers dedicated their best efforts and toil. There are farmers who water their fields with their sweat, these are the Arabs. Can this type of land acquisition continue? Will these dispossessed remain silent and accept what is being done to them? In the end, they will wake up and return to us in blows what we have looted from them with our gold. Nonetheless, despite these individual worries or warnings from Zionists to each other, they still sought and pushed for land acquisition from Palestinians. The Jewish National Fund, or JNF for short, was established in 1901 between these two Zionist statements I just read out to you. And this is an organisation instrumental in land and home acquisition from Palestinians by taking advantage and purchasing some land mainly from absent landlords just for the purpose of settling Jews onto it. Though these types of sales ultimately were not very common. The entire scheme was quite a racist endeavour indeed, trying to prevent Palestinians from living, settling or purchasing land from there ever again. This was not innocent immigration, but rather racial segregation of the land. However, in the grand scheme of things, Zionism was struggling with numbers of people willing to move to Palestine. In order to try to amass more followers in addition to continuing to search for a powerful country to back them, and finances to pay for their endeavours, Zionists continued to build a picture to corroborate biblical stories and their connections to them. This included using and abusing a range of factors to try and spin history into the direction of Zionism, which according to Thomas Suarez's book, Palestine Hijacked, included looking at not just religion but mythology, archaeology, artefacts, the naming of places, how Western European and American nations subconsciously thought, and a supposed unexplainable miracle in their genetics. Normally in colonies there is a tendency to spread a certain religion as they take over a land and its people. Europe's Christians would settle in places like Africa, Asia and the Americas, attempting to spread Christianity, which ironically was a religion established in what we know as Palestine. Zionism, unlike other European settler colonies, attempted to sell a new idea, where instead of spreading their faith, Judaism, to the Palestinians, they claimed instead that they themselves were the original inhabitants of the land. They claimed that they involuntarily left this land 2,000 years ago to be foreigners in places like Europe and now they want to go back, while Palestinians had somehow moved into the land in the time that they were away. These Zionists were a people who for the most part had never visited Palestine and yet made it seem like they were from there and had never left it. In order to successfully sell this ahistoric fallacy of an idea, Zionists had to change the relationship between colonialism and religion, as we have seen, rather than following the traditional model. The way they branded their ideology was important in their indoctrination campaigns. Even the name Israel was specifically chosen to fit the narrative of religious, biblical, holy, and to summon imagery that it was created by God himself. It would make a state with such a name unique, and it really appealed to Westerners, to Europeans, to Americans, and later, the founder of the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion, who would admit that without forging imagery such as this, they would never attract enough Jewish settlers from Europe to come to Palestine. 
but more imagery was needed than that. A big issue for Zionists, especially by the 1920s, was that they did not have a common language between themselves. And so even the settlers could not speak to each other depending on where they were originally from in Europe. A united people have a united language and a common tongue between them. The Zionists, as European Jews from different places, meant that they did not have this quality. Herzl decided, amongst the many languages that had been in Palestine, like Arabic, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, to use Hebrew, as it would be an attempt to unite these settlers with a language used in their religion and in their holy book, though it was not used for conventional speech or communication. After all, Hebrew had essentially been a dead language prior to this, only used for religious purposes, so again, this was a tool of trying to unite followers of Judaism and build more significant imagery among them. Before this, the main plan was to use German, as that was a widely spoken language amongst the settlements, and using Hebrew particularly for education would have been completely impractical. This was found by Dr. Paul Nathan, a Jewish man from Berlin, Germany, who travelled through Palestine in the early 1900s, trying to improve the education systems within the Zionist communities. And he opted for German, though notably he wrote in a pamphlet in 1914 that there was a, and I quote, campaign of terror modelled almost on Russian pogrom models to enforce the use of Hebrew, calling it arrogant Zionist activity and overrout Jewish nationalist chauvinism causing problems against the Mohammedan and Christian populations. So we see that, although impractical and no one wanted to use it, even amongst the colonialist European settlers who were in Palestine already, there was a campaign to force them to use Hebrew. The Actions Committee of the Zionist organisation condemned Nathan, stating that the settlers must learn Hebrew as their, and I quote, children must know they belong to an ancient civilised race another part of Zionist imagery and mythology, to indoctrinate the masses into thinking something completely untrue, in spite of their mother tongues. Again, this depended on their homeland, which often included German, Russian, Polish and Yiddish, to name a few. If you considered the indigenous Palestinians who were Jews, however, then their mother tongues would be Arabic. And what about the naming of Palestine? Cartography and map making is still to some extent seen through the maps that people made centuries and centuries ago. In Western Europe, one of the first maps of Palestine came from Lübeck, Germany, in 1475 in the form of a Latin woodblock. But then moving through the 1500s to the 1700s, where humanity seemingly advanced in their scientific knowledge, cartography of Palestine was thought of as biblically rather than considering history, modernity or its actual inhabitants. Therefore, maps did not really take into account the reality of the situation on the ground either in spite of their increasing knowledge of geography. This type of mentality and biblical framing of Palestine did not change for a long time and even continued when it was the British in the 1800s with their Palestine Exploration Fund. The question of Judaism and being Jewish or a Jew as a race was also a key aspect of Zionism. As discussed already, Palestinians, regardless of their religion, were all the same race but for the Zionists who came from Europe to have an aspect of their lives which they are born with and are unable to change, basing this on Judaism as that was one of the main differences between them and their fellow countrymen and women, and clinging on to it like a nationality was their method. This Jewish nation was the nationality and race that they tried to convince others is from Palestine and always has been 
discarding thousands of years of Jewish existence outside of Palestine, rendering it irrelevant, insignificant, and almost non-existent. And they also did the same thing with the Jewish existence that was already inside Palestine prior to Zionism's influence, rendering it completely irrelevant. It is as if those who believed in Judaism in the past in Palestine a few thousand years ago did not convert to other religions, as if they did not intermarry, did not migrate or go to war, but rather froze their DNA and remained pure-blooded for all of history with the same faith for this exact moment of opportunistic colonisation. This is a central feature of the Zionist modern-day Israeli politics, as they do not classify nationality of their citizens as Israeli, but rather Jewish. And this is maintained by their Supreme Court, which gives a right of self-determination, and therefore rights only to those who they consider Jewish. This is an anomaly, with no similarities in any other country in our modern world, with obvious reasons as to why something that is a lie or incorrect to falsify history and justify colonisation is not accepted. Jewish people in the past have defined themselves as a religious group. Those who did not just count them as a religious and cultural community include the Judeophobic groups of Europe, and those who followed the ideology of Zionism. In addition, Israel today proceeds to forbid what they call the mixing of blood, or in other words, marriages between Jews and non-Jews. So they aimed to create this state, not with Judaism as its religion like any other nation on the planet, but with the Jews as the state itself. Hence why they, wrongfully, believe it is Judeophobic, or as they say, anti-Semitic, to criticise the state of Israel. The irony, of course, is that in addition to Zionists classifying Jewish people as such, Europeans also believed Jewish people were a separate race, hence why it was easy for them to target Jewish people in both the East and the West of Europe and not to consider them as one of their own. So far we have seen the mass indoctrination of European Jews by Zionist groups in an attempt to begin the colonisation of Palestine whilst looking for a powerful country or powerful finances to support them in their newly established ideology. Do not think that the current occupation of Palestine or the ongoing conflict is an ancient one that is thousands of years old between historical enemies. It is not, and it is clear with what the Palestinians have been saying since the 1800s that this is a native indigenous people against a racist settler colony from Europe who has built an extensive mythology in order to resemble a native people, to resemble a nation, and to resemble a real history, even though they cloud it with religious mysticism. That is what their Zionist archives show themselves, as they were not from Palestine, had no connection to it, and instead took advantage of the Palestinian hospitality and the religious tolerance of the people who lived there, and that had even preceded their racist ideology. To think that a Jewish settler, regardless of where they are from, today they can simply enter and or live in Palestine and be greeted by Hebrew amidst the mass propaganda they have taken in. And they are thought of as being more native than the Palestinians who speak Arabic and have been born, lived, have breathed, worked and died there for millennia. Approaching the later years of the 19th century, European colonisation continued, both with Jews and with Christians who had similar colonisation structures to each other. Aiming to settle in and to control Palestine, though neither quite felt at home in this foreign place. As mentioned, the Jews rarely stayed very long, opting to return home to Europe, 
As for the Christian Europeans, the German Templars tried building a colony in Palestine to create a haven for themselves away from Europe. The Germans, among others, were racist, obnoxious and arrogant towards the native population, as you would expect from a group of colonialists. In 1892, they even opened a hotel in Jerusalem with a German bar and billiards as a way for Germans to escape Palestine and feel as if they're back in their own homeland, Germany, again. This is a common characteristic of colonialism and occupation, divide between the native Palestinians and the colonialist Europeans. Early Zionists also saw their project as colonisation. Simply looking towards the terminology they used to describe their actions makes the picture a bit clearer. Bearing in mind, despite how proudly they used these words, they later tried to dissociate themselves from European colonial policies and tried to instead amend the words they used when referring to the colonisation of Palestine to be more positive or at least neutral. But this was after 1948. According to the book On Palestine by Noam Chomsky and Ilan Pape, Zionists from the earliest days used words such as the verbs lechit nachel, which means to settle, lechit yashev, which means to colonize, chit anchalut, which means settlement, and chit ayasvut, to mean colonization. And so these words were absolutely clear in their intentions. Ilan Pape summarizes the late 1800s quite well when it comes to what was happening at the time, speaking about both Jewish and Christian Europeans who had their eyes on Palestine. And I quote, In hindsight, it was a colonising immigration, a European movement with European people entering Palestine for the sake of European interests, not those of the locals. A colonisation in essence. The local people were seen as a commodity or asset to be exploited for the benefit of the newcomer or an obstacle to be removed. Now in this episode, we've spoken about life in 1800s Palestine, both in a civilian and political sense. We've seen the Ottoman Empire weakening, Palestinian and wider Arab nationalism rising. We've also seen the pressure coming from Europe on the Ottoman Empire and on the wider Middle East, along with the birth of Jewish Zionism. Thank you very much for listening, and please do have a look at episode 2 of this series, Palestine from Past to Present, as we will discuss how Palestine was and what kind of things occurred in the early 1900s leading up to the Balfour Declaration of 1917. To see the sources used for this episode, please have a look at our website, campaignforpalestine.com. Thanks again for listening, and otherwise, peace be upon you, and goodbye.